Well, thank you, Cody, for those kind words. So I don't know about you, but the coronavirus in our current cultural moment with social unrest has caused me to think a lot about evangelism and missions. And obviously that makes sense. You know, our plans are changing. And so sometimes we think that, you know, even in our quarantine as we're trapped in our houses, that the gospel is somehow trapped in our houses with us and that nobody's actually hearing the gospel and that people aren't being saved. You know, many full-time missionaries have actually canceled their trips. Especially missionaries in China right now are being sent home, or they were sent home, and now they're back in the States. And so missions are kind of on a halt right now. Evangelism seems to be on a halt right now. One of my close friends, she was actually just about to depart to China for three years to be on mission, and she's still obviously stuck in the United States. But... Does that mean that when our plans go down the tubes, does that mean when our, when our missionaries are sent home, does that mean that the gospel is also going down the tubes, that the salvation of souls is also going down the tubes with it? How should we think about the change in plans for our missionaries and our evangelists, and even in our own life, as we're stuck in our homes and as everything is kind of wrestled up? How should we think about the work of evangelism, of sharing the gospel with people? So here's a question I want us to think deeply about as we get into our text this morning. What are the promises that anchor us in times of uncertainty as it pertains to the advance of the gospel and the salvation of souls? So again, what are the promises that anchor us in times of uncertainty as it pertains to the advance of the gospel and the salvation of souls? So to answer this question, we're going to dig into... Paul's incredible statements in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So let's go to 2 Corinthians. I, I hope you can turn there in your Bibles, otherwise it's going to be on the screen. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We'll read it first to just get a, a grasp of what's being said, and then we're going to dive into some context around it. So Paul says this, starting in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but, of, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in sight of God, we speak in Christ. So verses 12 and 13 are actually part of a larger section that comes before this uh, that starts in chapter 1, verses verse 15, and it's, it's a section where Paul is defending his change in ministry plans. So he's had a change of plans, like a lot of our missionaries have had today, and now he's defending why he changed his plans. So let's actually talk about this change in plans that Paul was experiencing and set the stage for the things that he says in verses 14 through 17. So Paul's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Paul actually planted that church in the year 50, and he was there for about a year and a half. So he planted it from 50 to 52. 
And to use Cody as an example, it's as though Cody would be here for another six months and then he would leave to go do something else. But hopefully that's not the case. So he, he planted the church for a year and a half. And then his second visit was in 55 or 56. And Paul said that this second visit was a painful visit. It was rich in discipline. Rich in discipline. It was hard. It was painful. It was not fun. And then Paul's, Paul's final visit was in 56 or 57. It lasted about three months as he phased out his ministry in Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia in order to reach Western Europe, such as Spain. So as you know, we have two letters to the Corinthians in our Bibles. But Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We are missing two, and it would be pretty cool to be able to read those letters, but we don't have them. The two that we do not have were written immediately before and immediately after our first Corinthians. So that means that we actually have the second and the fourth letters to the Corinthian church. And as we see from the first letter, if you were to open up your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians and read through it, you'd see that the Corinthian church was a church with a lot of issues, a lot of problems. They were they're full of division, immorality, sexual immorality. They had doctrinal errors. There was some favoritism happening there, some partiality. And they were even questioning Paul's authority and ability as an apostle. I mean, we look at the Apostle Paul and we read his letters in our Bible. And, and I mean, it's the Apostle Paul. He's, he's amazing. But this Corinthian church actually thought that he was pretty weak, that he wasn't really maybe even fit to be an apostle. An apostle. And it's really striking. The list of criticisms that they bring against the Apostle Paul is kind of unbelievable. But that's, that's the circumstances around this. So after his second visit, which I said was rich with discipline, Paul told the Corinthians that he was going to come back and visit them pretty soon to continue to work through these issues. He was going to come back in person to visit with them. However, upon his arrival to Ephesus, so he left Corinth after the second visit, he said, I'm going to come back. He gets to Ephesus, and then he decides, you know what, I'm not going to come back. So let's actually read him talk about this change in mind in chapter 1, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 4. So follow along with me in your Bibles, or it will be on the screen. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. There it is. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul decides not to come. What does he do instead? He writes a letter. He writes a letter instead. And this letter that he wrote is technically the third letter to the Corinthians. The one, we don't have this letter. This letter that he decided to write, we do not have. And then what does he do? Well, he, he tells Titus to deliver this letter. Titus is the Titus that we have been working through that book. The same Titus, he tells him to deliver this letter to the church in Corinth. And then Titus and Paul likely make a plan that once Titus delivers the letter, he's going to return and they're going to meet in Troas so that Paul can get word of how the Corinthians responded to his letter, how they responded to his change in plans. And so 
that's where we are in verses 12 through 13. Paul tells us that he is in Troas preaching the gospel through an open door. Literally in the Greek, what that means is Paul is in Troas for the sake of the gospel. But our Bibles add in the word preaching or proclaiming so we understand really what he's doing. He's actually, he's evangelizing. He's preaching the gospel message in Troas through an open door, which means he's experiencing success, which means people are coming to Christ. He's having fruitful ministry in Troas. But what does he say? He says his heart was unrestful because Titus didn't show up. And as he said, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians with much anguish of heart and tears. He loved the Corinthians, and he couldn't get it off his mind how they would have responded to his letter. He wanted to know if his letter actually permanently split him from this church or if it actually mended their relationship, and it was, it was a good change in plan. So he's unrestful in Troas, even though he's experiencing evangelistic fruit. I mean, you can just imagine our missionaries in China right now. Maybe they were experiencing evangelistic fruit. There was an open door, and all of a sudden the coronavirus hits, and they're sent home. Changing plans. Now what? Something similar has happened here to Paul. He's experiencing an open door, but he needs to hear from Titus. So what does he do? He takes leave. He goes to Macedonia. And so likely, Titus and Paul, before Titus left, they said, okay, we're going to meet in Troas, but if, Titus, if you don't get to Troas before winter falls, then we're going to have plan B be that we meet in Macedonia instead. So that's likely what happened. Likely, Winter fell, Titus didn't show up, so then Paul takes leave, goes to Macedonia for plan B. So 2 Corinthians, the book that we are in right now, is the follow-up letter after Paul actually met up with Titus and got word of how the Corinthian church responded to his letter that we don't have. And so overall... His letter was a success. His change in plans worked. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 5 through 9 to see how uh, the Corinthians responded. Here's what Paul says. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So... The Corinthians repented. The letter was a success. His change in plans was a good decision. However, Titus also brought word back to Paul that there was still some in the Corinthian church that thought Paul was double-minded. He's changing his plans. He's double-minded. He's, he's going. He's making his decisions by the wisdom of the world. He's vacillating between two things. And we see Paul actually explain that in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians if you wanted to read it later. But furthermore... Titus also brings word that there's some false apostles that have showed up in Corinth, at Corinth and are plaguing the Corinthian church with a false gospel. Paul actually calls these false teachers super apostles because they have this outward, this outward face to them. They look the part. They look awesome. They're eloquent in speech. 
So Paul's actually going to address these super apostles in our text this morning in verse 17. We'll get there. So just keep in mind as we dive into our main points, Paul is giving a theological defense for his change in plans. First, his change in plans to write instead of go, but also his change in plans that when he was in Troas experiencing evangelistic fruit, he decided to leave. So now he's going to give us a defense for that change in plans. And I think what he tells us is, is really amazing. And these next verses have empowered my ministry of evangelism for years now. So we're going to actually look at four anchors to your evangelism in times of uncertainty. Four anchors to your evangelism in times of uncertainty. So what is the first anchor that holds us down when our life is crazy? Well, it's evangelism is always God-led triumph. Have you ever wondered how God can make a promise in Revelation that somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be worshiping God before the throne in the new heavens and the new earth, having been saved by the blood of the Lamb? That he promises us that somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation, I think people have estimated that there's roughly 16,000 of these people groups in this world, and somebody from every single one of them will be worshiping. How does he make that promise to us? Well, this is the answer. God is leading our evangelism, and he is perfect in the work of saving his lost sheep. So Paul is explaining his theological grounding for why he is thankful, even though he's making tough decisions, namely to leave this open door. But then he gives us two kind of, he gives us two images to, to, to prove his point here, and these images are confusing to understand, and they're kind of contradictory. They don't really fit together well, but he uses them nonetheless. And that's kind of why Paul is sometimes hard to understand. But we're going we're gonna to wade through him a little bit and try to sort it out what he's trying to do. But this, the first image that he paints for us, why he's giving thanks, is an image of a triumphal procession. So what is a triumphal procession? Well, we have good reasons to believe that Paul was actually referring to an act of Roman military leaders that after they experienced a great victory in battle and they conquered their enemies, they would go back into Rome and they would lead a host of captives, the prisoners of war, in triumphal procession through the streets in Rome. And it would be this great victory march. So that's the picture that Paul is painting here. The best example of this triumphal procession that Rome did was actually in the year 71, so about 15 years after Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians. And it's of the Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus, after having just conquered the Jews of all people, they are now riding on their chariots in triumphal procession through the streets of Rome, leading the Jewish captives. It's kind of ironic, actually, because Paul's Jew. Now, if you actually were to go to Rome today, you could go to the Titus Arch that is still in Rome, and you could see a depiction of this triumphal procession engraved in the stone on the side of this arch. To this very day, you can see that on the Titus Arch. So that's the best example of this practice that the Roman army would do. And that's what Paul is likely referring to here. But there's something really peculiar about what he's saying here. He says, I mean, if you look at the text with me, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 
So what Paul is saying that he, he is that slave, he is that prisoner of war, he is that captive, that Christ is captured. And now Christ is leading Paul as a captive, a prisoner of war, through the streets. That should shock us a little bit because then Paul says, but thanks be to God. He's giving thanks that Christ has captured him to do his bidding, to do his work, that he is Christ's slave. Have you ever saw yourself as a captive of Christ, as a slave of Christ? We, we, we don't really like to think about that. And in fact, the, the Greek word slave is often translated bondservant of servant just because we just don't like the taste of the word slave today. But the Bible is very clear that we are God's slaves. He has captured us to do his work. And Paul is giving thanks that he is, has been captured, captured by Christ to do this work of evangelism. In fact, his captivity, his suffering, his weakness, his ineloquent speech, these are actually evidences of his adequacy to be an apostle of Christ. You know, these super apostles that we'll get to, these false teachers at the Church of Corinth, they actually pointed to Paul's suffering as evidence that he's not fit for this work. Look at us. We have wealth. We have fine clothing. We look the part. And that guy over there, he's suffering. He's weak. He can't be a true apostle. But Paul says that actually his weakness, if you were to read through this, this book, is actually the evidence of his adequacy, of his true apostleship, which is really amazing. Let's actually consider John fifteen twenty. Listen to what Jesus says. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And that's that, that word slave there. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we are Christ's slaves. And if the world persecuted our master, they'll also persecute us. A Christian's life is a life of suffering and pain. Or consider also Christ's words that he spoke to a man named Ananias at Paul's conversion and his commission. This is in Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he, he's talking about Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him, Listen to this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul, Paul has been captured by Christ. He's going on this road to Damascus, going to get permission to persecute and kill Jews, or kill Christians. And what does Christ do? He jumps right in the middle of the road and captures Paul for himself. And then Christ says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul understands this. That's why he's giving thanks that Christ is leading him in triumphal procession. So, Paul is being led in triumphal procession, but now he starts to shift his imagery in the second half of verse 14. And so this brings us to our second anchor in evangelism. And that is evangelism is always glorifying to God. So, read with me, if you look again, the second half of verse 14, he says, I'll read the whole verse, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
So now Paul paints a picture of this fragrance, the smell being spread through us. So that's why Christ has captured us, to be a tool to spread this fragrance through. This fragrance of the knowledge of God. What is this fragrance of the knowledge of God? What is Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about the gospel. What does the gospel do to lost sinners? Well, it brings them into a knowledge of God. And what, what does a knowledge of God mean? What does that mean? Does that just mean intellectual? Does you just know some true things about God? Well, no, the, the Hebrew word that we translate know or knowledge actually encompasses every aspect of a person's being. Their intellect, their emotions, their will, their heart, their affections. And so this, this Hebrew word is actually used to describe the deepest aspects of marital intimacy between a man and his wife. And so that's why the Bible will say Adam knew Eve or Abraham knew Sarah. So thus, God is using us, his children, his captives, to spread this fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere, to spread the gospel around the world and to bring people into a relationship with God an intimate relationship, a personal relationship. That's what we're doing. That's evangelism. That's what God has captured us to do. But Paul continues with this imagery, but fully shifts to a depiction of the Old Testament sacrificial altar. So this is where we start to see a, a different imagery forming here. And it's hard to interpret. It's hard to see how these things fit to, together. But nonetheless, we're going to try to understand it. So here is really where we get this point that evangelism is always glorifying to God. Read with me in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we start to see Paul describing an Old Testament sacrificial altar image. And so in the Old Testament, I'm not going to labor it much, but how people had their sins atoned for was that they would put their sins on a spotless lamb or an animal, symbolically, because we know truly Christ was the only one that could bear sin. But they would put them on the animal, and then the priest would slaughter the animal and spill the blood on the altar, and then put the body on the altar, and then they'd set it on fire, and this aroma would lift up to God in heaven, and he would smell this aroma. And if it was a spotless lamb, if it was a worthy sacrifice, it would please him. It would glorify him. It would appease his wrath on sin. And it's actually pointing towards the ultimate atonement, and that's Christ. That animal actually did not atone for their sins, but it was to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But now Paul's image is peculiar here again. He says that we are this aroma. We are the smoke that's lifting up to God in heaven. So what does this mean? Well, it means that when we share the gospel, we are speaking, we are proclaiming the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. We are actually proclaiming the body of Christ, the blood of Christ spilled on the altar. And we're actually proclaiming that his sacrifice paid for sin, paid for your sin and my sin, that it was a worthy sacrifice and that this, this aroma that's lifting up from Christ's blood on the altar is actually pleasing to God. It satisfies his wrath on sin. 
So when we preach this, we are actually as though being this aroma, and it's, it's in a sense reminding God again of the sacrifice of Christ, and it's so glorifying to him. It pleases him. So let's actually look at Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, to see this depiction of, of Christ being on the altar. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is one eternal life for us through his sacrifice on the cross by taking our sin on himself, facing the wrath of God in our place, and then through faith giving us righteousness as a gift. So again, as we proclaim the gospel message to people around us, there is though an aroma emanating from us, and it's going up to God and it glorifies him. Now this is the important thing for you to understand now. Every time you share the gospel, every single time, it is a supremely God-pleasing act. Supremely God-pleasing. Look at the second half of verse 15 with me. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it does not matter whether you're preaching the gospel to somebody who rejects it or to somebody who accepts it. It's still a pleasing aroma. It's still a pleasing aroma. And we've all probably, you know, we probably have family members or friends in our life or people that we really love that just, that just continue to reject the gospel. And we go, oh man, should I preach it to them? Should I say it again? But remember that whether they reject it or they accept it, we hope that they do if you preach the true gospel message. It's an aroma lifting up to God and it's always glorifying to him. Always glorifying to him. And isn't that what we're created for? Has not God created us for the very purpose of glorifying him? And if, if it's true then, if it's true that when we actually preach the gospel, when we actually evangelize, it glorifies God, and that's our purpose for existence, why shouldn't we be doing this all the time? I mean, if it's that simple, if I can just go out and preach the gospel to somebody, and it's a pleasing aroma to my Father in heaven. It's just really amazing. Now, I've trained people in evangelism. I've done a lot of evangelism on the college campus, and I've asked a lot of people, what is the biggest hindrance for you going out and evangelizing? And I think there's actually probably studies on this. There's probably some official numbers. But the thing that I hear the most is that the biggest hindrance to evangelism is a fear of rejection. And I think we've all felt that. Absolutely. The thing is, is that this verse right here destroys that fear. It abolishes it. It's a misplaced fear. If we truly understand what it means to evangelize, that fear is misplaced. And we should not believe it. Here's the thing. Rejection is guaranteed. I mean, most of the people that I've shared the gospel with have rejected it. Sometimes you see somebody accept Christ, receive Christ, and it's amazing. 
But nonetheless, nonetheless, I know, and this is why this passage has gotten me through evangelism. Day to day, this is where I go back to. Because I know that if they do reject it, it's still glorifying to God. And that's what I'm created for. So have you thought about evangelism in this way? Have you thought about that? Man, I just want to go glorify God. I just need to spread the gospel. I need to preach it to people. I hope that you're motivated by this truth. And I hope that you're not crippled by the fear of rejection. And I hope that this, this fear of rejection hasn't kept you from being this aroma to God. So that brings us right into our third anchor on evangelism. And that is evangelism is God-ordained division. Now this point is going to be a little bit hard to swallow. But the scripture is clear that God has ordained and elected to save some and not all. And thus, when we are preaching the gospel to lost people, obviously we know some will accept it, some will reject it. So we start to see a division occurring, a separation. We start to see, though not finally and certainly, we start to see who the sheep of God are and who the goats of the world are. Consider the texts, Acts 13:48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who are the ones that believed in the gospel, who believed in Christ? Those who were appointed to eternal life. When were they appointed? Well, the Bible tells us before the foundations of the world. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is speaking. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one. It's all inclusive. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. There's no such thing as a seeker. The Bible says very clearly, no one seeks after God. God has to draw them in. Or consider John 10, 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So why? He's talking to the Pharisees. Why didn't the Pharisees believe? Because they were not among his sheep. And so those who reject the gospel... The gospel is a fragrance from death to death. So now Paul starts to shift his imagery again. So in the beginning, if you look in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Then he shifts to this this aroma, this fragrance that is going to God. And now he shifts back to a horizontal fragrance. So it's horizontal smell, vertical smell, back to horizontal smell. So now he says, verse 16, to one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, to other, a fragrance from life to life. So now as we preach the gospel, as we evangelize, the people that we come in contact with will either smell death or they'll smell life. And those who reject the gospel, who do not accept Christ, who do not turn to Christ in faith and repent of their sins, they smell death. So keeping, if we kind of combine what Paul's doing here, the sacrificial altar, that's that picture there, but now back to this other picture of us spreading a fragrance to people around us, we see that those who reject the gospel, 
What do they smell? They smell the burning, rotting, dead corpse of Christ. They smell a Christ who is still in the grave, dead. They smell an open grave. They don't see the resurrection. These are those who are perishing. Their life is a perpetual suppressal of the knowledge of God. This knowledge of God that we've been talking about, this deep, intimate knowledge, they suppress it. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Though they hear the gospel, they do not want it. They want to be autonomous. They want to sin. And isn't that what sin is? Treasuring anything more than God, building your life on anything other than God, desiring anything apart from God. That's what sin is. That's, in, that's the deep nature of sin, that we worship ourselves and live for ourselves and we desire to be our own man and do our own thing. That's these people. So though somebody came to them, an evangelist, and they gave them the gospel, they preached the gospel to them. Oh, it was glorifying to God because it was an aroma that went up. But to them, because they're perishing, it smells like death. And we, we don't want that, but that is the case. Now, on the other side, though, those who receive Christ through faith, the gospel is a fragrance from life to life. And if you're a Christian in here today, you have smelled that sweet fragrance of life. You don't smell an open grave. You smell the resurrection. Christ is alive. And he offers you salvation. What do you see? Well, the Spirit has come into you. It's regenerated your heart. He's given you a new heart. And now you see that, man, I'm a sinner. And my sin deserves hell, hellfire forever. And you see that, man, I once was like those people who are perishing, living for myself, doing what I want to do, loving sin. And it grieves you. But you see that the, res the, the crucifixion of Christ and the cross and his resurrection and his perfect life that he lived is the best news possible. You see that there's, there's forgiveness of sins in Christ and you want it and you trust Christ in faith. Let's actually look at a passage in our book, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where Paul actually starts to talk about this thing that's happening here where some are perishing, some come to Christ. He says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to, do every, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan has blinded their minds, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So for the, those of us in here, who have received Christ through faith, we have seen the light of the gospel. We have seen the face of Christ, the glory of God, and it's amazing. And thus, a division is occurring, though. 
We preach the gospel. Some see the light, some stay veiled in darkness. Ultimately, we see this ultimate separation, this ultimate division occurring at judgment. Let's read Matthew 25, 31 through 34. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, meaning every single person who's ever existed will gather before him. And he will separate the people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And if you were to continue to read in that passage, you would see that he casts the goats into the eternal lake of fire. And he takes the sheep and he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of my father. And I hope you hear those words one day. I want you to hear those words one day. And you can hear those words one day if you put your faith in Christ and believe in him. What does faith mean? What do I mean by faith? We hear this word a lot, faith. What does that mean? Again, like this knowledge of God that we've been talking about that encompasses every aspect of our being, faith is like that too. So faith means that you intellectually believe true things about God. You really do believe that Jesus is God of the universe, that he really did live a perfect life, that he really did die on the cross for your sins, that he really does offer you eternal life, your faith. You really believe those things. You really believe that you're a sinner. But now, faith's not just intellectual, but it's also emotional, meaning you actually have true affections for Christ. You actually want him more than anything. The deepest affections that you feel for your loved ones in your life, whether a spouse or a children or a mom or a dad, it's like that. You want him. You love him. And then faith also encompasses the will. You're so stirred up by your affections and your love for Christ that you will repent of your sins and turn away from your wicked life and you will pursue Christ in obedience. So your will is moved. That is true saving faith. And if you do not have true saving faith, you can trust in Christ today and receive salvation. So all this talk of spreading this aroma, being this fragrance, doing this amazing work of evangelism, of glorifying God, it makes sense that it would elicit a question from Paul. It should elicit a question from us. And he says this in the second half of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? Who is sufficient to spread this knowledge of God, to bring people into salvation? Who is sufficient to be used by God as a tool to save lost sinners? Who is sufficient to proclaim the glorious riches of Christ's life, death, and resurrection? That should be what we're thinking. I can't do this. I was just a sinner too. Who is sufficient or who is qualified for this ministry of evangelism? So that brings us into our fourth anchor on evangelism. And our final point. Evangelism is the work of God-qualified men. If you remember, Paul has been giving word of false apostles plaguing the Corinthian church by Titus. So here we see him introduce those false apostles. He refers to them as, in verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. That's these super apostles he's talking about. Who are these super apostles? Well, we really don't know exactly. Scholars have tried to figure out who exactly these people were, but we do know some, we do know some things about them. 
We do know that they were preaching a false gospel. We do know that they were likely preaching a Jewish gospel, which elevated works, circumcision, things like that. We do know that they were eloquent speakers because they mocked Paul for his ineloquence in speech. We do know that they boasted about their outward appearance, their face, Paul says. They talk about their face, not their inward heart. We do know that they actually came with letters of recommendation to the Corinthian church. Look at, look at my letters of recommendation. Look at my accolades. Look at my degrees, whatever it is. We do know that they were Hebrews and Israelites and descendants of Abraham. And we also know that they sought to validate themselves with signs and wonders, with revelations and visions, which is interesting. Now, Paul calls them peddlers of God's word. And this word peddler is laced with meaning. The Greek verb that is used to describe peddling is, is used when somebody practices wine hawking. So back then, people would take pure, undiluted wine and they would dilute it with water. It's called wine hawking. And then they would peddle it. They would sell it for a price and say it's something that it's actually not. So Paul is saying that these false apostles, these super apostles, peddled God's word, meaning they diluted the message of the gospel. They watered it down, and then they sold it for a price. And we actually see in chapter 11, verse 7, that the Corinthians actually gave them money. They actually gave them money. It worked. They peddled this word. And they actually got mad at Paul for not asking for money from them. Well, these false apostles, they asked us for money. How come you didn't? And they actually used that against Paul. You must not be a real apostle because you didn't ask for money. These peddlers were certainly quick to ask for money. So the greatest parallel that we have today to these peddlers of God's word are obviously today's prosperity preachers. Without a doubt. It's almost like, it's just almost exactly the same. It's really crazy. I'm going to list a name of some prosperity preachers who have for decades proven themselves to be peddlers of God's word. Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Joseph Prince, Joyce Myers, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Sid Roth, Rod Parsley, Jesse Duplantis, Todd White, and Paula White, just to name a few. There's a lot more. These people are peddlers of God's word. They do the work of Satan. They disguise themselves as angels of light. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians, that these false apostles disguise themselves as angels of light, just like Satan does. They, dis- they disguise themselves as true apostles, though they're not. And what do they do, these prosperity preachers? Well, just like these peddlers, they seek to validate themselves through signs, visions, healings, prophecies, human eloquence, a fancy suit, a big church, a private jet. That's what they do. Do not buy their diluted wine, meaning do not support their ministry. But now Paul gives us the counter to these peddlers of God's word. He tells us what a true preacher of the gospel is. He asks, who's sufficient for this work of evangelism? Well, now he tells us. Number one, five things. He's he's qualified by God, meaning he's not self-qualified. He's not a guy that brings a letter of recommendation. Read with me 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-6. through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. Remember what Cody said last week when we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit? That's what makes us sufficient. The Spirit has entered into us and sealed us and empowered us for this ministry. The Spirit of God has qualified us. That's amazing. Every single one of us in here, if you have the Spirit of God in you, is qualified for this work of evangelism. So, one, he's qualified by God. Two, he's a man of sincerity. See what, see what Paul says. But as men of sincerity. What does that mean? Well, sincerity literally means tested by the sun, S-U-N. Tested by the fire, put into the furnace. He's seen to be authentic. He's a real deal. Read with me 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. This is where we get our idea of ordination from today. Yes, a man can have a seminary degree. You can learn all this stuff. You can have the letter of recommendation. But are you tested? That's why we have ordination. A group of guys who have shown themselves to be true preachers of the word come around and they question him and they grill him, really. They ask him about his character, about his personal life, about his theology. They test him to see if he's authentic. So, true preacher of God's word is a man of sincerity. Three, he's a man who is commissioned by God. And Paul's likely referring to his own commissioning, which we looked at in Acts chapter 9, where Ananias came to him and said, you are going to be a preacher of the word to the Gentiles. But we have all been commissioned. If we're Christians, we've all been commissioned by God in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, or Acts 1, 8, that Cody read last week. We're all commissioned to make disciples of all nations. So this work of evangelism is for every believer in Christ. For he is a man who speaks in sight of God. See with me again our text. We are men of sincerity as commissioned by God in sight of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in sight of God? Well, it means that Paul speaks and preaches and evangelizes in light of judgment. Which means that he knows he'll have to give an account for every word that he has said. He has to stand, he has to stand before the throne. It makes me think of James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We're held accountable for the words that we say. We've got to make sure that the gospel we preach is the true gospel. So we speak in sight of God. Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That comes right after Paul says there is no other gospel. Why have you left this gospel for a different one? And so if we try to please man, we're inevitably going to be like a peddler. We're going to dilute the message so we can approve man, get man's approval. So the fact that we speak in sight of God in light of judgment keeps us from that. We preach the gospel for the glory of God, for his approval, not the approval of man. And five, he's a man who speaks in Christ. Has this not, Paul has been saying this. He said it right away in, in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ, and then finally at the very end, we speak in Christ, meaning the true preacher of the gospel is someone who's truly saved. 
who truly has the Spirit of God living in them, who is in the death of Christ, meaning their sin was placed on Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. They're in his death, they're in his resurrection. They're sealed by his Spirit. They know him. So we speak in Christ as, his, as God's children. So that brings us to the end of our text. And we see that even in times of uncertainty and change of plans, even when our missionaries are sent home or we're locked up in our houses because of the quarantine and shaky relationships through immense suffering, Paul and we also can give thanks because we are anchored in the truth. We are grounded in the sovereignty of God and thus we know that the spread of the gospel is always triumphant. God will save his lost sheep. That should encourage us. So I want to ask you a few questions to close us. And these questions are basically just going to be our anchors, but in question format. And I really just want you to think deeply about them to yourself. And obviously the first one is this. Do you truly believe that evangelism is triumphant? Meaning, do you truly believe that it's always victorious? That it's always successful? Do you really believe that? You know, I've actually heard just lately, because of all these riots and protests and stuff, that some have said that Christians should not go into these riots or protests and preach the gospel. That would be offensive. That would be uncompassionate. You shouldn't do that. Don't preach the gospel to these people. That's a lie. That's the problem right there. Exactly. So if you truly believe that evangelism is always successful, you won't be sidelined. You'll be in there preaching the gospel. Question number two, do you truly believe that evangelism is always glorifying to God? Do you really believe that? And I think if people truly believe that, we would go evangelize. We would. I hope you do. Three, do you believe that evangelism is God-ordained division? Meaning, when you go out, you will see people reject it. You will see people accept it. But that's okay. God is in control and he's leading us. And finally, do you truly believe that you are one who, because you are in Christ, alive, have been commissioned by God for this very purpose? To spread the gospel, to preach the gospel, to evangelize to our family, to our friends, to our loved ones, to everyone. And so, finally, if you've answered yes to these questions, then I must ask, what is keeping you from being courageous in evangelism today? Let's pray. Lord, we truly are thankful for your word. Lord, as we think about the circumstances of Paul, oh man, he was unrestful, Lord, and he was experiencing great persecution, great suffering, great trial. But he gave thanks, Lord, because he was grounded in the scripture. He was grounded in the truth of the Bible, Lord. And he knew that his, his evangelism was triumphant, Lord, that his, his evangelism was led by you, Lord. You controlled it. You controlled the movements, Lord, of his body geographically, Lord. You were in control. And Lord, it encouraged him to open up his mouth and spread this sweet fragrance of the knowledge of God, spread the gospel and be that aroma. Lord, I pray that every single one of us in here today, Lord, would be so moved, so encouraged by this word, Lord, in 2 Corinthians, that we would go out and we would be these spreaders of the gospel, Lord, these proclaimers of the glorious riches of you, Christ. Lord, encourage us and embolden us, Lord, to be your witnesses.
in your name. Amen.